First Chronicles chapter 13, please. <clears throat> First Chronicles 13. When I was in the uh, fifth grade in public school, you know, they did music and so I played the cornet for a couple of years. I wanted to play the drums, but all the boys wanted to play the drums. I think my mother was happy that I didn't play the drums until she heard me play the cornet. And then, <laughs> First Chronicles chapter 13, let's go ahead and stand please. Beginning in verse number one, and David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, if it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that, we, that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and the Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to say to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together, from Shihor of Egypt even unto the entering of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David went up, and all Israel, to Baalah, that is to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, and with singing, and with harps, and with psalteries, and with timbrels, which are tambourines, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came unto the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Wherefore, that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark home to himself to the city of David, but carried aside unto the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in the house in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. And let's pray. Our Father, we pray your help and blessing this evening that as we come to your word, we would be instructed from it as it is intended for all of your people at all times to be instructed by it. And so our prayer is, first of all, that we would have wisdom to understand the meaning of the story, grace to receive it and take it to ourselves, faith 
to believe where it leads us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, once again, from the standpoint of the task of preaching, I'm up against the constraint of having a much larger topic to address than I have time in which to address it. This story in the framework of the Chronicles really kind of remains unresolved, and we will get to that. It is kind of left undone in chapter 13, and then it appears that in chapter 14 we've almost forgotten about the dilemma we just had, but the Chronicler has not, and he will return to the subject matter of the Ark in chapter 15. And In fact, the Ark of the Covenant occupies a very large portion of the early days of David's ministry. The chronicler began, if you recall, in fact, were we reading Hebrew, the very first word of the book is Adam, as in Adam of the Garden of Eden, Adam. That's where he begins. Then he selectively works us through all of the genealogies to bring us to Abraham, to Jacob, to Jacob's 12 sons, especially the tribes of Judah, the kingly tribe, and Levi, the priestly tribe, pointing out to us Saul and ultimately bringing us to David. And David becomes now the central figure of First Chronicles. The remainder of First Chronicles is about David or David's reign, or David's administration of the kingdom. David as the prototype of the future kingdom of Christ. Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 have as their subject matter David's efforts and interest in bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the capital city of Jerusalem. And so just to make sure that we all are kind of thinking along the same lines, I want to take just a couple of minutes and refresh our memory about the role of the Ark of the Covenant in the economy of Israel. You first meet it in Exodus chapter 25 when God has begun the process of building a meeting place, the tent of meeting. It is made out of, our King James Bible uses the word shittim wood, S-H-I-T-T-I-M. You may have a note in your study Bible that it is acacia wood. But even that is not completely helpful for acacia is actually a genus. And there are almost 1,100 different species of acacia wood that could be used. But it was a common wood. It was a wood common to Africa and the Middle East. And it was used for a variety of things. And one of those was building things like the ark. And the ark is not an ark in Noah's ark sense, but an ark in a chest kind of sense. It is about three and a half feet long. It is about two feet wide and about two feet tall. It is an empty chest made out of wood. It is the lid that is stunning for it is made out of pure gold And at either end of it is a representation of the cherubim. 
And the cherubim, it seems, are angelic creatures whose function is that of some kind of guardian. When God drove Adam and Eden, Eve from the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim at the entrance so that they could not return. The ark itself then became the home of three items pertinent to the history of Israel. Inside of this empty chest, three and a half feet by two feet by two feet, is, are the Ten Commandments, or the two tables of stone, really. Some manna in Aaron's rod that budded, which was something that happened in one of the many controversies over Moses' leadership and Aaron's role in it. But the real significance of the ark is just that. It is the representation of the presence of God. It is where the Israelites would go. This sacred ark was placed in its own special room within the tent. A room about 15 feet by 15 feet square that we call the Holy of Holies. The most holy place. And we call it the Holy of Holies because the Hebrew would just simply say, Holy, Holy. It was the most holy place. No one was allowed into that room except the high priest once a year. He went in carefully, reverentially. He threw a bucket of blood upon the mercy seat. And God accepted that sacrifice for the sins of the people for that year. It was where God was. Wherever God was, the ark was. That was how the Israelites thought. That was how God presented himself. This is one of the reasons in 1 Samuel 4 that they take the ark to the battlefield. God will be closer. So the the ark of the covenant has its own history. And this is just one more thing, folks, to tuck away. We will return to this when we get to the end as we think about the Ark of the Covenant is that we as Gentile people, we have no relationship to the Ark of the Covenant. We know that. It's a historical artifact to us. But the recipients of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they had no relationship with the Ark of the Covenant either because it's gone. It is one of the pieces of furniture that has been destroyed by the king of Babylon and hauled away. The inside parts, the tables of stone and the manna had long been gone. And now it appears that somewhere in the world today is a piece of gold that used to be the lid to the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And yet God is going through all of this detail to talk to the Israelites about that. And again, we will come back to that at the end. So there's, there's the ark. It is significant. It is of monumental importance in David's day. It is where God is. And if the kingdom is going to be established in Jerusalem, then it's, it's essential that the ark of the covenant comes to where the capital city will be. And David, of course, we know already has hopes that he will be able to build God a temple, and then the ark will be placed in the temple. So it is moving the ark from where it is presently located to the capital city of Jerusalem that 
consumes our attention for the next few chapters. So there's a sense in which we are introduced to this moving project in chapter number 13. Verses 1 through 4. Let's just kind of walk through it. I'm going to deal with it in three large segments. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13 tell us about a good idea put in place with good intentions. A good idea put in place with good intentions. God is in the process of establishing David as the king. He knows that. He's not being a dictator or an egomaniac about it. He knows that this is what the Lord wanted, him to be the king. And so David consults with the leadership of Israel. 2 Samuel 6.1 tells that the number of people that he consulted with was 30,000. And he says to them, if it seems good to you guys, and if it seems like something that the Lord would support, then let's get everybody together and bring the ark to Jerusalem. Which I guess raises the question of why, why isn't it already there? And you recall in 1 Samuel 4, in that horrific attempt to win a battle by bringing the ark to the battlefield. The Philistines have captured it. They take it to their cities where they are encounter unmitigated disaster. The ark does nothing but bring them misery and pain. And finally they begin passing it around to other Philistine cities only to come to the conclusion that it has to go back to Israel and it ends up in this village called Kirjath-Jerim. That's where it is. 1 Samuel 7, 2, it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years and the ark is not in its place. And David gives you the explanation for that there. <clears throat> At the end of verse number 3, we've talked about this in First Chronicles 13. Let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. Which is really a little bit stronger word than it comes across there. Sometimes the word is translated in your Bible with the word required. David is not suggesting here that it is some kind of option, one more, one more way of checking off a box to see if we're in the right, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, oh, and let's check with the ark. Again, a very sad commentary on not only the kingdom of Saul, but the nature of Saul personally. He couldn't be bothered with God. What God thought about something was of no consequence to him. And everybody said, this is a good thing. And it was, folks, let us not make any mistake, it was a good thing. So the story begins with a good idea put in place with good intentions. But then it comes time to put our good intentions and our good idea 
into action. And the good idea is executed poorly. Good intentions. We want to do something that pleases the Lord. A good idea. This is 30,000 people said this is a good and godly idea. And so David gathers people from all across the land. Sihor is a branch of the Nile. Hemath is way up in Syria so that you're being given some geographical markers. Right? We know that pretty much the eastern border is going to be the Jordan River and the western border is going to be the Mediterranean Sea. And we're down into the fringes of Egypt and we're all the way up north into the land of Syria. And David, of course, is not going to be a spectator to this. He's going to be a participant. And so he goes with all of these people to Kirjath-Jerim to get the ark. If you want to turn to it, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we can read 2 Samuel 6's account of what we have in 1 Chronicles 13.6. David went up and all Israel to Bala, that is to kirjath Jerem, which belonged to Judah, bring up the ark, thence the ark of the Lord God that dwelleth between the cherubims. 2 Samuel 6.2, David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. Right? This, there it is, folks, in its, in its glory. This is, this is where God is, and this is where we talk to God. This is where we call upon his name. And they put it in a new cart. Somebody had thought this through. They put it in a new cart. They did not put it in any old cart. They did not put it in a proven cart. They put it in a new cart. No doubt somebody concluded that God was worthy of a cart that hadn't been used. And it comes with a great celebration as you read through there. Verse number 8 of 1 Chronicles chapter 13, And David and all Israel played before God with all their might. With all their might. And with singing, and with harps, and with psalteries, and with timbrels, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. So this is a celebration. Now you and I know, because we're familiar with the Bible story, that there is trouble ahead, but they don't know that. Verse number 9, when they came unto the threshing floor of Kaidon, Uzzah, one of the men who is driving this brand new cart with the ark on it, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And, and an ox, folks, is not a special kind of animal. What, an ox is what we would call a steer. And when Uzzah does that, <clears throat> verse number 10, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he has put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. And just like that, the party's over. 
good idea. Nothing but the best of intentions. Carefully planned implementation. Complete disaster. The third part of the story is verses 11 through 14. What is the reaction? And again, what anybody else thought, folks, and we don't know exactly how many people there were that are on this excursion and traveling. And maybe Uzzah had family members there. Maybe his wife and children were walking close behind the ark. We don't know. We're not told. We're only told about the response of one man, and that is David. And David expresses two emotions. We're told about them. David responds in two ways to this. Number one is fury. 13.11 And David was displeased. Which does not mean David was a little bit upset. David was furious. In Genesis 4, 5, and 6, this is the same word that is used to describe Cain's anger against his brother. This is the same word that is used to describe the Lord's anger in Numbers chapter 11 and verse number 33 when the people demanded food instead of manna. We want meat. We're tired of the vegetarian diet. We want meat. And the anger of the Lord was kindled. God was furious. And you notice, folks, that the verse tells you that God is that David is mad at God, and David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Not a generic anger, but an anger that is directed at the Lord's activity. And the word breach there, again, is, is a good word, is an accurate translation, but what is a breach? And the idea is of tearing a big hole, of really ripping something. God had broken through. God, right, here's this big celebration in God's honor, for God's glory, by God's people. And it is as if God reaches his hand from the invisible world into the visible one and throws Uzzah to the ground, and before he hits the ground, he's dead. And this has such a significant impact that it goes down history with its own geographical marker. Hey, can you tell me how to get to Jerusalem? Well, if you're leaving kirjath Jerem, you go down this road, you get to this road, and you get to Uzzah's Breach, and you turn right. They called that place. This is the place where God reached out and killed Uzzah. And the text just leaves you there, by the way, folks. As I said, one of the, one of the problems, the, the challenge, not the problems, but the challenges of preaching is how far do we go in any given moment? And the story just ends there. David is mad. 
Here I am trying to do this thing for the Lord. Here we all are. And God just reached his hand in there and tipped the whole thing over. And the second emotion is fear. Verse number 12, David was afraid. Which you have to admit, folks, that that anybody who really had any attentiveness to the Lord would be terrified. Because, folks, you have to understand, right, again, and, and I know that you know what I'm getting ready to tell you here in a few minutes, but these people are absolutely perplexed. What did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? And David is afraid of the Lord. What did we do? What happened? I mean, we're singing praises to your name and worshiping you and nobody's sinning. Nobody's complaining. We have unity in the nation. And so the question then becomes, how do we get the ark to to you? How do we get the ark to you? That's the question he asked. Verse number 12, David was afraid of God that day saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? And so he didn't. He didn't. You can only imagine the caution that was used, folks, in verse number 13. David brought not the ark home to himself, the city of David, but carried his side to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. How much fear and apprehension must have accompanied that short journey? And then, because God wants you to know Right? That he is not randomly furious. He wants you to know that he blessed Obed-Edom because the ark was there. David is angry. David is frightened. The journey is halted. And the people are perplexed. So where are we at this point of the story? And now I'm going to take just a few minutes and try and look at these events through three different eyeballs. First, let's think about the way an Israelite who was the recipient of this book would read. You have to remember, folks, that this is a historical book. David has been dead for hundreds of years when Chronicles is recorded. The Jews who have it in their hands are returning captives. These are the people who are going to build that little dinky temple on the old Temple Mount. These are the people that the old guys, guys my age and probably actually older than my age, who had seen the temple that Solomon had built, could remember it, had walked around its public places, when they saw the little dinky thing, the little nondescript thing that was put together, they were reduced to tears over what they had lost. These are the people who are reading this. They have no ark. They have no ark. Nobody knows where the ark is. Nobody knows what Nebuchadnezzar did with it. So what do you do, 
Right, so, so let's just, I, I think, folks, that we're not too far afield if we would just think about this event for them historically like we would think about our own history. What's the point? What's the point of telling our elementary-aged children about our founding fathers and George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson? What's the point? And by the way, what's the point of really trying not to whitewash these men as if they were heavenly saints who came down, but to deal with these people as realistically and as authentically as we can? We want to know, we really want to know who we are, don't we? Who are we? What were we? What were those people in their day when they were doing the things that gave us the country that we have? Who were they? The history matters. So here is, folks, a greatly diminished group of people going back to a land. You can read Ezra. You can read Nehemiah. You can see that the, that the city lay in the desolation and the ruins in which the Babylonians had left it. The people are very despondent and very discouraged. You can read about that in the Old Testament prophetical books as they think about building this temple to no particular good end. They needed to be reminded of who they were and they needed to be reminded about their exemplary king. The man who really did love the Lord. The man who really did want to do what is right. The man who really did help them in establishing the worship that they would come to love. Whatever else this man is, and we all know that David has his own sins. This is a man who is dedicated to the Lord, who is oriented around God. And those people need to know that. Secondly, let's look at it through David's eyes. Let's look at it through David's eyes. David is a godly man who is both angry and afraid. And I don't think that we should try to downplay or excuse, folks, David's anger. He is really angry. He is angry with the kind of fury that God has when he does things like kill people. Cain had that kind of anger and he killed Abel. God had that kind of anger and he killed a bunch of people in Israel. So this is real anger that David has. And he is really agitated about this. And David is really frightened. Again, because folks, you can't read ahead yet. You have to, you have to deal with the information that David had. Why did David do it this way? And the only plausible answer, folks, is because nobody had yet instructed David, and he did not know, whether it's to his detriment or not, that there was a proper way to move the ark, isn't there? But to David's credit, folks, and that's where I'm trying to go here, to David's credit, he doesn't do what frequently angry people do turn around and walk away from God. That's what a lot of people do when they get mad at him. 
They can't kill him, but they can abandon him. Who needs a God like this? Here I am. I'm putting forth a good effort. I'm trying to do everything that is right. I try to do all the things that I know to do that are right. And what happens? This is what happens. Why bother? But that is not the position that David takes. And in fact, folks, if you will jump ahead... to chapter 15, skip over chapter 14, chapter 15 and verse number 2. Well, let's start in verse number 1. David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. Remember, there is no tabernacle. It's gone. Solomon has yet to build the temple. David pitches for it a tent. Verse number two, then David said, none ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. So somewhere, folks, between chapter 13 and all the events of chapter 14 and chapter 15, David has done what godly people are supposed to do. Whatever study and research is necessary into knowing what God says about a subject. And if you go, I'm not going to do it tonight, but we will no doubt look at it. I'm thinking, if I remember correctly, we'll look at it a little more when we get to 1 Chronicles 15. But in Exodus 25, 13 and 14, in Numbers 4, 4 through 6, we read that when God actually had the ark constructed, he had made provision for a way for it to be carried in the very construction. There were rings attached to the sides of the ark so that you could run a pole through the rings and carry it that way so that nobody touched it with human hands. We're not told how, we're not told when, we're not told who. We just know this, David becomes enlightened. There's a right way to move the ark and that's what we're going to do. And then the third set of eyes are our own. Does it bother us that God killed Uzzah? Such an apparently extreme reaction for such a minor infraction. Or is it a minor infraction? Who gets to determine whether it's a minor infraction? This becomes part of the issue, folks. Who gets to decide what a minor infraction is? All I did did was put out my hand to steady it. I wasn't, and and by the way, if if we go back and read through the text, when people found the ark, right, they, they were curious. They wanted to look inside of it. That did not go well. That was not a good experience for people when they looked inside of it. But Uzzah wasn't a curiosity seeker. He was trying to help. He was trying to help. I think, folks, and I'm going to ask you if you would to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 one more time, and we will close with this. I think that we need to work very carefully to cultivate in our own mind and spirit the understanding that God is not being unreasonable 
to insist that things are done the way that he wants them done. Not just that we do things. Not just that we do things that we conclude are good things that would be honoring to him, that would give credit to his name, and we're going to get them done. But to find out the way that he wants things done. This was a problem in Corinth. This is not just a modern ministry problem where we have all kinds of American ingenuity and creativity surveying the landscape, looking at what's going on, looking at the declining interest in the religious world, and everybody coming up with their various formulas and ideas of how we're going to address this to maximize the influence of God and the glory of God in this world. Right? A good idea and good intentions, sometimes with very poor execution, this is not just a modern problem. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto, them which are sa- but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, for long before we ever have the first Baptist church of Corinth, God had made this declaration, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God has his method. And you know the story, folks, that when Jesus told the story of of, uh, the rich man who died and went to hell, and Lazarus who was in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man said, would you send Lazarus to tell my family? That would really impress them if they could see a man that was dead. And the answer was, they have the Bible. And if they won't believe the Bible, they won't believe anything. So we, we, ha- we have been told not only what to do, but how to do it. Let's pray together this evening. Father, thank you for David and his dedication to you, his devotion, his desire to serve and his willingness to serve correctly. And thank you for his previewing for us his far greater ancestor, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus the Messiah, who is perfect in all his doings and perfect in all his ways and perfect in all his knowledge. And may we be reminded, Father, what a great blessing and treasure we have to be his servants. And may we do it to his pleasure, and we ask this in his name. Amen.